Hey everyone, you're listening to The Talent Revolution, where we believe that focusing on quality over volume and being different, not better, is the right way to hire the best humans and build stronger teams. To help you do this, I go behind the scenes with forward-thinking recruiters, employer brand experts, and people leaders making a huge difference to their orgs. I'm your host, Tom Hackwell, and today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Mike Schwedick. Mike's an epic guy and just generally one of my favorite people. He's been in the HR industry for 15 years in a variety of roles from HR ops at Apple through to head of people roles at startups, advisory council positions, opportunity at work. We're going to dig into that in a bit. Uh, And as a very recently an account exec here at Pinpoint, I pinky pinky promise we're not going to focus on that and we're not here to sell you anything, uh, but we're super proud to have Mike on the team finally. He's got a whole bunch of experience we think you'll find really useful and we just wanted to take 30 minutes or so to dig into that. So Mike, thank you for joining me on the pod today. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. Appreciate it. No swear. I think let's start at the beginning, right? So um, you have this like very varied career background and and keen to dig into some of the specific roles and things you've done so we can kind of extract some value from the audience. But do you want to just give us a bit of a lightning fast overview of the sort of different roles you've had uh, from zero to hero, so to speak? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my my experience is really split in sort of two stories. One is for large companies like uh, Apple and Town Sports International. And then what I've been doing for the last six or seven years, which has been primarily in the startup space, I really just fell into HR. I was uh, 19 or 20 years old working at an Apple store, which is pre-iPhone. And they were growing quite a bit, obviously, in anticipation of the massive iPhone launch in 2007. And we're sort of deputizing local managers to become HR um, people. And I said, sure, why not? And I learned a great deal over the three years that I was there and really fell in love with the function. It was just a, a different way that I could think about you know, HR uh, and how I experienced it previously. And so I uh, worked for Apple, worked for another large fitness company for five or six years, really as an HR business partner doing a lot of change management. This was uh, you know, a company in a different direction than Apple at the time uh, that was really uh, sort of getting squeezed out by the rise of boutique fitness that was starting, right? The soul cycles and so on. And then these low cost providers, Planet Fitness, that were just truly disrupting the industry. And so that was a really good learning experience, but obviously quite difficult when you know, the uh, public traded companies kind of going through those transitions. From there, I, I hopped into a, a fitness startup as a head of people, uh, was one of the first uh, employees hired and uh, you know really just loved that experience. And that's why I really stayed in the startup space since then. And so Starting with companies really early on where you know there's no payroll process, there's no HRS, there's no ATS, there's no recruiting methodology or process. Um, and so really implementing all those and helping companies sort of evolve, attract, and retain talent. And so, you know, left the fitness space, started to do some consulting, and then have been with the nonprofit opportunity work, which I know we'll talk about over the last couple of years. So uh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And so picking that apart a little bit, I think, you know, we've spoken about your time at Apple a fair bit and you've just said it there, right? It kind of gave you a new perspective on what that HR sort of people function could be and what that looks like. You talk about learning a lot from there. I think, what did that sort of open your eyes to? What did you kind of pick apart from Apple that you think you might not have got somewhere else? Yeah, being, you know, early on in just any sort of professional environment, you know, I've worked in retail in, in high school, of course, right? Uh, part-time as I was in school and continued that into my early 20s. And was used to, you know, of course, the seasonality and, and temporary nature, but also just the high turnover that previous companies would sort of expect. And Apple was a little bit different. Granted, they you know, had a, a huge advantage, especially as the iPhone launch and, and have their you know, financial situation is quite different than a lot of companies. But, you know, they really viewed that even if they were having employees that were seasonal or temporary, you know, they wanted to retain um, them, even if they were coming back every single year. Uh, and if they had someone that was working 10 hours a week, they wanted to invest in that person. Um, and so they care deeply about that. And so I just, it's not really what I experienced, right? Before 
HR was a very minimalist, right? Like compliance, of course, right? Uh, and just sort of checking the boxes, but just expecting like there's just going to be a high amount of turnover. And, you know, Apple viewed that differently in, in terms of just how they wanted to attract, but also their onboarding and that, you know, everybody at that time in the Apple store, and, you know, this was a small store, considered a small store, but it was 125 employees, right? Which is bigger than a lot of, you know, a lot of startups. Everyone had an employment development plan, right? So everyone was synced into that. They had MPS for anybody that was working five hours a week and above. And so it just really just changed my perspective on that and reinforced like the value of work and the dignity that comes along with that. And that's something that's always really stuck with me. That's awesome. And I like the, the, the word dignity used there, right? Like that makes a lot of sense in this context. I think often forgotten in the context of sort of people ops and looking after folks in a professional environment. I think you also talked about the sort of, I don't know how to frame it, like Apple obviously have a sort of different deck of playing cards to most orcs, right? In terms of the sort of underlying profit machine that they've got through the iPhone and, and other lines of business. As you then sort of moved on to the fitness industry, both the big co and the startup and, and such sort of subsequent opportunities, how like applicable was the learnings that you took from Apple and how easy was it to kind of transition that experience into best practice elsewhere? Yeah, it definitely stuck with me. How easily it was applied was a little bit, was definitely different based on the experiences, right? So coming into the larger fitness company I worked with for, worked for, for about five or six years, they were established. They'd been around for 40 years at that point. And that sort of turnover that we talked about, they were certainly used to that uh, and, and comfortable with that to a certain extent. And so that, you know, I took that as a point of like trying to really change the way that we, we thought about that at a regional level and then company-wide as really difficult, right? As that was sometimes successful, sometimes not. And really tried to apply that uh, as I could. The beauty of going to a startup, and then that's really why I think why I'm stuck in that place is being, you know, first head of HR, whether coming in as a full timer or consulting, you know, until they're ready to bring on a full time head of HR. Is you get to really have that influence from the start. You get to bake that in in terms of hiring practices, in terms of onboarding, and you know the things that Apple were doing was doing is you know when you think about the investment in employees and onboarding, you know, obviously there's a cost to to labor and there's a cost to you know, when you're pulling managers to do that versus sales or doing backup house or whatever it might be. But it wasn't as if they were using like expensive software or, or tools to, to get that done. It was just a matter of intention and focus and time. And so we really tried to iterate that into a large company that was struggling financially at the time. And then, you know, startups that are bootstrapped and trying to sort of, you know, work, work it out as they get funding. Yeah, sure. That's all. And, and I think like, as you say, that it doesn't need the world's best tools or the most expensive investments in things. It's more of like a cultural and perspective shift, right? And sort of ingraining that into the way that you operate across the board. And I think really keen to dig into some of the experience you've had helping other sort of smaller businesses do that. And we'll kind of get there in a, in a minute. Want to dig into opportunity at work there because that's where we met. And I think the work that they're doing is awesome. Can you kind of give us a bit of background on what opportunity at work is and what's come out of that? Yeah, for sure. Opportunity Work is is a nonprofit uh, with a mission to essentially increase career opportunities for the more than 70 million adults in the United States who actually don't have a four-year degree, but are what we call skilled through alternative routes. So we use this phrase STARS, S-T-A-R, skilled through alternative routes. And basically, you know, employers may not realize that, that these bachelor degree screens put 60% of US workers on the outside looking in. In fact, the, the majority of new jobs created actually require a bachelor degree. But 60% of the U.S. workers don't have one. And so Opportunity Work, we've done research on the 70 million stars and found that they actually have the skills to do a lot of the jobs, but are overlooked when, when companies arbitrarily require for your degree. And 
you know, this is really damaging for a number of reasons. When you require a bachelor degree, you screen out nearly 70% of black workers, 80% of Hispanic workers, and almost 75% of rural workers. And so, you know, college can't be the only path to success uh, in America, but right now a four-year college degree represents the most direct route to securing middle and high-wage work. And unfortunately, employers have turned college from, you know, this bridge uh, to opportunity to a drawbridge that gets pulled up basically if someone hasn't gotten through. And so, you know, college is a clear pathway to upward mobility and it should be, however, it shouldn't only be the pathway. And so Opportunity Award really aims to change these hiring practices and shed a light on these, these 70 million stars. No, that's awesome. And yeah, I think that when I read that report, because you guys produce a great report quite frequently, right? And with a whole bunch of data in it, which I really encourage people to take a look at and we'll put in the notes uh, for the pod. But it was that latter point that you made, right? It's not just that people are screening out the people who don't have degrees, but it's actually that you did the research and found that the people who don't have the degrees actually like 70% or something of the time without butchering the data could do the job and have the capacity to do the job and can demonstrate the capacity to do the job, but it's irrelevant, right? And I think it seems such a simple and trivial hiring process change to sort of open up this incredibly talented pool of people. And I think the bit that I hadn't really considered, because you talked about the sort of underlying implicit discrimination against people of color and people of different ethnic backgrounds. And also that rural community piece I thought to be super interesting, especially through the lens of sort of an increasingly diverse range of talent acquisition strategy now, right? Like people aren't just looking in like metropolitan centers now, people are sort of fanning out and looking at communities across the country and across the world. That 75% of folks who don't have a degree in rural communities seems just like an incredibly low hanging fruit opportunity for organizations willing to sort of slightly evolve the way they think about that degree requirement, right? A hundred percent. And, you know, to your point, I mean, during this, you know, most recent era of, you know, civic unrest and, and racial injustice, employers are increasingly affirming their their social responsibility change their hiring and management practices, right? To to prioritize diversity and inclusion. And we've heard this a lot. And there's a lot of companies late to the party, of course, but you know, by focusing on job skills rather than Continuing to prioritize college degrees, employers can dramatically increase diversity in their workforce and, and expand economic opportunity. I mean, it's clear that these are exclusionary hiring practices and they're built on falsehoods that low wage equals low skill and that bachelor degrees are the only gateway to job relevant skills. And, you know, we hear the phrase lack of degree, um, even companies that are trying to prioritize stars and are bought into this. And this suggests that everyone should have a four year degree. And too many people blame stars for not getting a degree, assuming that they're going to be lazy or not smart enough, rather than recognizing the financial or, or family reasons that or access, right, that led them to, to follow the alternative routes. And so, you know, companies have overlooked so much skilled talent and built these pointless barriers while opportunity gaps have really become chasms. And, you know, the good news is these trends are not forces of nature beyond our control. They're, they're the sum of institutional and individual choices. Um, where we're choosing convenience um, over consideration of skills. And I've been there as a recruiter and I've been hiring obviously for a long time. And especially if you have a job that's performing well and you have 100 applications, some view that as a hack, right? They'll, they'll screen out the 60 of those 100 most likely that don't have a four-year degree. And they say, well, that's a signal, right? Of skill and experience and professionalism and you know, all of these things when it's incredibly, incredibly harmful. 
Yeah, I think it's just a super interesting area. And, and I think there's like a bunch of conflating factors here, right? So like we've had on the podcast previously, people like Markelos and Omer from Brick and Vervo respectively, who talk a lot about assessments and the value of sort of shifting away from the traditional resume and killer questions and moving to like a skills-based assessment criteria for taking job applications, because it's the way the world should look right now. And actually resume and job performance have very little correlation. I think the other thing that we're seeing obviously is just that market for talent becoming even more competitive than the ridiculously competitive level it's already been and i think organizations i hope to a point are sort of forced to look past some of these like very face value level metrics and actually start digging deeper because whilst it is easy to screen out those without a four-year degree the 60 percent of people that you're doing are the 60 percent of people that are also being screened out by everybody else and they're the actual competitive advantage i think if you can look at that through a different lens I don't have a four-year degree, which is one of the reasons that stars really, really, obviously my circumstances are, I'm very fortunate. But the point is that like, yeah, it isn't a catch-all statement about work ethic or intelligence or any of those things. And I think it saddens me that people don't realize that. But the thing that I don't really understand is like, what are you seeing in terms of pushback here, right? Like you've got the data, you're talking to these organizations, it, the message is quite clear how can anybody legitimately kind of push back on this? What are you hearing when you're speaking to organizations and trying to educate them up to this stuff? You know, I'd say the good news is when you talk to hiring managers and company leaders and especially recruiters, especially the ones that are actually doing this, and it clicks right away. For really the most people, they they really get it and they realize like how harmful it is and how they're limiting themselves and they think about how they're struggling to have a diverse and representative pipeline and that they're just limiting themselves so much. And they realize, you know, a lot of times I hear them say, like, I've just always done that, or I've just, I've never questioned that. That just sort of made sense. And so the good news is it is really sort of like a light bulb moment, and it makes a lot of sense. You know, for those, and, and this is usually individuals sort of outside the recruiting and hiring process, you know, that are looking at the business sort of like 10,000 feet, would just say, you know, hey, I want the best, the best. And, you know, that's just like a signal to me that this person is, has completed this. You know, they might say words like tenacity, like they finished it and shows that they can show they can complete something A to Z. And, and it's just, again, it's just this sort of like built in bias that's not really based on anything. And again, this is not to disparage 40 degrees. Like I said, it, it is and should be a, a direct way to middle and upper wage jobs and really important. This is not an anti degree thing at all, but it's really not based off anything. And that's where the data. You know, we talk about gateway jobs of, you know, this person is a customer service rep. Um, they've been doing it for two years. Maybe they make $10 an hour. And based on these skills, they can actually do these jobs that pay 50000 a year. And here's why. And they've been working at this pharmacy for three years. And so if you're talking about sort of stick-to-itiveness or tenacity or whatever it might be. So it's your point around the annual uh, State of the Stars reports that Opportunity Work puts out. Um, and that information can be really helpful for those conversations. And so, like, what is the organization's ultimate goal? Obviously, like, educate and, and increase awareness and things like that, right? And the data that comes out of the organization is epic. But, like, how are you sort of measuring the performance of opportunity at work as an entity? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, basically, they are looking at a couple of things. One is they are launching in regions. as They're looking at how they can support stars in ecosystems, right? So, and they've done this in Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, and then San Francisco Bay Area, and I'm sure another more on the way. Uh, and they'll look at everything from what are, you know, where is there a large star population? Where are there gateway jobs, right? That could be maybe an entry-level IT role, for example, that they could transition to where there's maybe an industry that, you know, they're sitting there every year and they have 
you know, 5,000 of these software uh, positions or IT admin positions open and they just sit open and open and open. And then you've got the stars population that with the certification can do it. They try to match those up in those, in those ecosystems. They'll look at everything from challenges, right? So we have a large startup population in one part of town. This is a very specific example. And we have this one huge company that's hiring. And we would look at infrastructure issues like transportation. And so we'll look at regional partnerships, the mayor's office, things like that. They also have an online marketplace, which is called StellarWorks. And this is essentially a faster way for employers to find uh, stars for career pathway tech roles. Um, and so it's not an applicant tracking system. Uh, it's essentially like an additional layer where we they have a database of stars that are looking for positions. It's a skills-based platform. At the same time, there is uh, actually, it's a three-way platform. So you have stars, you have training providers, and then you have the companies that are willing to hire. So if John's computer company says, we're going to hire 500 stars for these entry-level tech roles in San Francisco, uh, the stars are on the platform. And then there are training providers that will provide that basic certification that they need, that the company needs this is signal to get them into those positions. So that's one way that they uh, are really uh, trying to, to make an impact. Sure. And so just sort of building on that, for those people listening going, I hadn't heard of STARS as a sort of vernacular or terminology before, didn't know much about opportunity at work. Eyes are a bit more open now. Obviously, go read the report because the data is super engaging and it's really easy to digest. But like, what's your advice to organizations that want to do something about it, right? I'm assuming it's not just as simple as removing the yes, no killer question of whether you have a four-year degree. You talked about like finding STARS and getting into that ecosystem and other things like what can organizations do to sort of help with this problem? Yeah, I mean, employers, as, we, as you said, this is something that's definitely manageable. Employers can, can make deliberate choices to reverse this decline, essentially, in economic mobility for STARS and, and ultimately strengthen their talent pipelines. You know, one thing is really being intentional with job descriptions and being clear on what you're looking for. And so, you know, when you say you want 15 years of X experience, what are you actually trying to solve for, right? Because what are the skills? What are the things they need to be doing? And really be clear and intentional with your job descriptions. And that's is obviously a task for recruiters. And I know they're managing a lot of recs, but you know, it's something I've tried to do. And what I've had recruiting teams to have them do is really to figure out exactly what you're trying to solve for. And, and you talked about skills-based hiring, right? That's just, it's really understanding what are you trying to, to solve for when you're hiring somebody. But you know, similar to how you'd have self-identified information with your team in terms of ethnicity and sexual orientation, you know, you would want to know star status, right? So start with your existing stars in your company. And look at what their potential paths are. What are the maybe middle wage positions that you could open and prioritize? Identify roles where stars can be hired. So again, in the report, you talk about gateway jobs. Um, not only the jobs that you know these uh, rising stars can go into, but also what positions they currently have. And so you can think about screening them in. And then proactively recruit stars. So you know companies choose which campuses to recruit from, right? And so companies can purposely find the worker skilled through alternative routes. When you realize we need these three core skills and you think about, and when you can use the report for the, this type of help, but, you know, a cashier, you know, that's been doing this or someone that is, uh, you know, at a retail store, whatever it might be, you can go out and you identify those individuals um, proactively and your pipeline will benefit and ultimately your hires will benefit. Sure. I mean, there's loads of takeaways there. And again, I cannot implore people enough to just go read the output from Opportunity Work and the, the Stars Report because it's fascinating. Before we move on to sort of more generic 
kind of HR and, and people best practice, I think would love to just touch on one more element of diversity and inclusion kind of more broadly, which is just this notion of like bias and unconscious bias, right? And I can see an environment in which an organization has a senior leader, a people leader, someone sort of very intimately involved in the recruitment process, make a call about this at the macro level and go, we're going to change our policy and not screen out based on four-year degrees. And we're going to change the way we think about job descriptions and sourcing. But recruitment's a team sport, right? And candidates get moved through a funnel. They meet with managers. They go through things. And like, you know, we do a lot here to try and stymie and mitigate unconscious bias. I think like, have you come across good resources or educational materials or like, how do you advise organizations to sort of reframe that conversation internally with the wider business to ensure that you're not then building a better sort of star populated pipeline and still managing to screen them out later in the process? Yeah, I mean, I think when it comes to this obviously large umbrella of DEI or DEIB, I work with different companies that are, you know, various sort of stages and not to oversimplify it, but some that are maybe seven of a 10 or some that are two or three. And I think that it's first really being honest about where you are and then where you can be right in six months, nine months, 18 months, right? If you're starting at a one and you're not sure where you're at, you know, is one is really having an honest conversation as a leadership team. And then ultimately transparently to your company about where you are and where you want to go. What's, you know, not there's, there's worse things, but, what happens a lot of times is the companies will put out these really great anti-racist statements and these commitment to DEI and they talk really big picture, but like they're three years away from doing that and maybe, right? Or maybe they don't really understand what's involved to get there, right? You know, an opportunity where we went pay transparent, it was, uh, you know, it wasn't for two years that I was there that we were able to finally do that. And that was a really important thing that we did. It's something I really believe in, but it took some time. It can't happen necessarily overnight, especially as you're a startup and you're still growing and figuring things out. So being really honest about where you are, not do paying lip service, employees want transparency and, you know, they know when it's not real. And like I said, if you're at a one, like then just stop the bad practices, right? Stop the bad actors, make sure there's a, a process in place and some controls. If you don't have an HR leader, you know, it falls in the CEO. And then of course, shared responsibility, as you said. So that's sort of broadly. I think the second thing is when you have that conversation is, is to raise your hand about what you don't know, right? So if you say, okay, we're, we've been around for a year, we haven't really talked about this, you know, like we need to figure out how to have better hiring practices and we don't know, need to do that or we don't know how to do that, um, is looking at for resources for having unconscious bias training. You know, obviously having a good applicant tracking system is going to have a lot of those, that structure in place and tools that will help you and, and hopefully some uh, knowledge resources as well. But really just being honest uh, and, and of course, looking in your network, if you're not sure where to start, um, is, is going to be really important. Sure. No, that's also, and, and loads of takeaways there. And, and I think you sort of have transitioned us nicely into this notion of, well, stepping back a second, you know, you've done a bunch of things in a sort of HR consultancy capacity, right? As you said, you've sort of drop shipped into a bunch of companies going through that sort of early stage startup growth phase, maybe pre first senior HR leader, pre head of people type thing. And you've kind of fulfilled that role in an interim basis till they've drafted somebody in uh, more permanently as the company got bigger. Would love to understand like the framework you've kind of brought with you into those roles, right? Like when you parachute into these businesses and they've got kind of very little foundation, they, I get that that's super exciting. And you were talking before about, you know, moving from Apple, which is big, but has sort of the right intentions maybe to another organization that's big, but isn't in a financial position and is a bit of a behemoth. So it's hard to sort of steer the ship. Yeah. When you're joining these small businesses, what are you looking for? Like what's your sort of 
plan of attack to sort of mature these things? And is there like a consistent order of events that you're you're doing this in? Yeah, I mean, I, I think where I start is, you know, obviously the state of things, right? So understanding, of course, headcount, what processes, tools are in place, and then what are the major pain points? And that could be both external and internal, right? So external could be from a customer success standpoint, because they don't have the right staffing, right? Or a buggy product because they're having trouble with engineering, recruiting, or whatever it might be. And then, of course, your internal wish list of if maybe if you run an employee survey or, or it's anecdotal, you know what your pain points are. So really understanding the state of things. And then understand what is the ideal state in 12 and, and twelve months and 24 months. And of course, looking at the funding, what the growth plan is in terms of headcount, could be the customer or you know region-based, they're going to open up new markets. And so to factor all those sort of things, and then what I do is we'll put together a wish list, um, right? So like, hey, if I could get your HR infrastructure in nine months to perfect, you know, no questions asked, no budget, here it is, and then engage in a conversation on those. And that could be as simple as, you know, I want to roll out an HRS, an ATS, a performance management system, comp philosophy, like you may not be able to do all those in nine, 12 months, you may not be ready for that for a number of reasons, there could be funding that, you know, around that, but really being realistic about that. And then, you know, part of that sort of understanding the state of things is, you know, sort of like a DEI audit, right? So just also understanding, like, how would you sort of quote, unquote, score the company, where are the gaps? Like I said, if you're at a one, let's get to a two. Let's make sure if there are really you know inconsistent or harmful hiring practices, uh, let's get that completed. Let's let's stop doing that, right? Or if there are some maybe some troublesome management practices or a lack of inclusive leadership, let's stop those things. But also sort of churning out you know what needs to be done essentially from that standpoint, and then putting that that together. You know what's pretty standard and I've done a number of times is right out the bat is an HRS. Uh, and an ATS usually right at the same time, you know, because you know you, you, companies need a source of truth for their HIS. They want to be able to manage employee, you know, uh, data and census information. They want to have that, and of course, an ATS to enable these early stage startups that are growing rapidly. Uh, and that's obviously a really important investment. So those are the pretty standard ones. And for the companies that I get into year two with, like Opportunity Works, a great a great example. That's when we start to get into um, more complex but great work, which is like job levels. A performance framework, right? So what does it mean in this organization to be an associate, a manager, a director, and so on and so forth? Like, what does that mean? How do you grow within the, within the organization? What are the levels? What are the salary bands, the comp philosophy? How do you, how, how do you work merit increases or bonuses and developing all that, which, you know, again, especially as a startup is, it just comes with time, but that's obviously a really interesting work. Oh, sure. That makes sense. I think digging into the, the technology piece just a second, and without, again, this being a conversation about Pinpoint, you, you talk about those kind of first two tool sets as being typically that HRIS and ATS. And obviously, like you work with a, a wide range of organizations. How do you help them become like a more educated buyer? Like, what is the sort of framework that you're thinking about when you're looking at these different, because obviously, there's loads of tools in, in both the HRIS and the ATS arena. Like, how do you help organizations understand which one is right for them? Yeah, yeah. I and mean, I think understanding, you know, what their maybe industry and, you know, the geographic considerations, those types of things are really important. You know, looking for a system that's going to be customizable enough for them because their needs are going to potentially change over time. And, you know, when you're starting out and maybe you're year one of the company, you just don't necessarily know, you know, how you're going to interact fully with the tool. I encourage them to reach out to other companies that are, you know, in a similar sort of function or sister companies that, they can understand a little bit about how they've been using their systems. But I think like a big thing, especially for an early stage startup, is the customer success side. 
and the support that they're going to need, um, especially to your point early on, if you have a company that is, you know, hey, I know, you know, we need to be doing these things. We don't really need know how to do that. You know, a company that is going to have additional resources to not only turn the tool on for you until you go, but help you interact with it in a meaningful way that you can continue to learn is incredibly helpful. I'd also want to look at companies where the product isn't stagnant, right? So is this company kind of done their product roadmap or is their product roadmap like, hey, we do semi-annual updates or, or annual updates, right? That's going to be really important because the landscape is changing so rapidly in terms of you know, what candidates are looking for and what they're expecting. So those are the things that I would really start with you know, when talking about like an applicant tracking system or any sort of HR tech. Sure. No, look, that all makes sense. And I think like a relatively natural point to wrap up, I think like, how do you say loads of things? And I think want to sort of circle back really to two points. One was, you know, as, as you're sort of parachuted into HR, the thing you were doing really is understanding what the company's goals and growth trajectory was and trying to kind of make people in HR like a supportive strategic function rather than just this like reactive people engine, which I thought was great and often underappreciated. I think there's some obvious advice on how to think and frame software purchasing decisions really bearing in mind like the rate of change within your own business and the need for the tool to be able to adapt to accommodate that and then i think you talked a lot about kind of assessing and you kept referring to this sort of level of maturity from a deib perspective right like if you're a level one really take stock and think about the plan think about being transparent all the way through to that level 10 and and where that continually evolves i think as we leave, where can people go? You know, obviously, we're super proud to have you on the team here. I guess super proud that you're also still very involved with Opportunity at Work on their advisory council. What's the best way for people to kind of digest and engage with the work that you're still doing there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, they can go to opportunitywork.org to learn more. They can download uh, the State of the Stars report, which will provide the data that uh, I've mentioned some of it, but there's a lot more. The insights team at Opportunity Work led by uh, Poppy and Boy is, is really incredibly impressive. And so that is where you can go in and really learn a lot more. And especially if you hear that and you're compelled by it, and then you read it more and you're even more bought into it, to have those maybe difficult conversations with your HR leader or CEO or whoever it might be, that data will help really arm you with the information that you need to change minds. And you know, ultimately, right, like this is a positive for companies, right? You're going to have, you're going to hire faster. You're going to have a, a better, uh, a more diverse, more representative a pipeline of talent. Um, and so it's definitely, it's a win-win all around. Cool. Mike, that's awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Look, everybody else, for more great tales from the trenches and best practice people guidance, please stay tuned to the Talent Revolution. Go ahead and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks so much for listening.